if you don't know who's doing what, who's accessing what, what devices are on your infrastructure, um, what assets you own, all of that kind of stuff. If you if you have no visibility into it, you have no real way of uh, starting any kind of program or defending any of it. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity, where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Hello, hello, hello. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show. I'm your host, Accidental CISO. Welcome back and happy holidays. We have another great show lined up for you this month, so stick around. We'll be talking about starting a cybersecurity program in a small business and taking questions from callers. Please be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. My guest host this month is an adept cyber defender, published author, podcaster, trainer, and speaker, to name just a few things. By day, she leads the detection engineering team at Bloomira. Plumira provides cybersecurity detection and automation services optimized for small organizations. She co-authored the Defensive Security Handbook, published by O'Reilly, and co-hosts the Breaking Down Security podcast, where she and the other hosts discuss a wide range of cybersecurity news and topics. She's the CEO of Mental Health Hackers, an amazing organization that supports mental health in the cybersecurity community. She's also a trainer at AntiSiphon, an organization that aims to make cybersecurity training accessible to everyone. A regular speaker at industry conferences, she has presented at RSA, Blue Team Con, and many others. But if that isn't enough, her most highly coveted skill is that she can perfectly fold a fitted sheet. I am thrilled to have you join me today. Welcome to the show, Amanda Berlin. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm glad we could make this work and uh, organize schedules. This was perfect. So you do a lot of work and give back to the community through your nonprofit, Mental Health Hackers. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the organization and what you do? Sure, sure. Um, it was an organization that was started about five years ago. Um, it was something that I never thought I would be talking about every day uh, because I'm not a mental health professional myself. Um, but having had gone through my own struggles and started talking about them, openly, uh, like on, on social media and stuff, um, that, you know, that transitioned into having my first talk about mental health. So it was, um, uh, hackers, hugs, and drugs, it's mental health and infosec. And it was more of just, uh, around peer support and teaching, uh, you know, people in the industry that, uh, a lot of the things that, you know, some of us are, are dealing with are, uh, they're not alone. Um, and it's, yeah, it's kind of blossomed into this entire nonprofit and we do events, places, we speak, we, um, write, uh, blogs and do interviews and all of this kind of stuff just to kind of help others in the space, um, uh, and try and destigmatize uh, mental health issues. And since the listeners to our show are business owners, business leaders who hire, infosec professionals often, or, you know, create the environments that the professionals work in. Um, why is this really important? So uh, I actually did a talk about this not too long ago. Um, if, 
if you look at it, if you put money and time and effort into better mental health for your employees, you get a, a, I think it's for every dollar you put into it, you get $3 back in productivity. Um, Because if you think about it, if you're just a hard overworking, not taking any breaks for yourself, just cranking through people all the time, the time and effort it takes when all of those people churn uh, to, you know, hire and retrain and everything that goes along with that um, is very expensive. And you're also creating this culture that proliferates the entire field with its normal to overwork yourself and, and, you know, leave your job after two years because you can't handle it anymore. And it's a particularly stressful field too. It you is. Know, I know because you've got <laughs> you know, a very there's a lot of risk field. that you're, you're dealing with and you know, the technical side of it isn't always well understood by everybody else in the business, but also it's a constant battle. I mean, you're securing the organization from criminals basically who are out to do you harm and like they never stop. So it's, it, it, you're never done. And I think that's right. one of the other pieces of it that makes it so difficult. So yeah, amazing work that your organization is yeah. is doing there. I love being able to actually come to the villages for quiet space when we go to conferences, because that gives me some time to, to decompress in an area that I know is like just a quiet place. And I can sit down and just kind of be by myself for a few minutes and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons we started the the uh, villages also because after they've been working from home for ten years, um, and when I would go to conferences and then just be surrounded by people twenty four seven for a couple of days, I would just have panic attacks and needed like a place to decompress and not be around loud noises and people and constant information. It's very helpful, and then anti siphon was new to me. Um, I was not aware of that at all. And so, you know, when you sent over some information about the stuff you're working on, um, you know, I, I had to pull up the website and that sort of thing. And I, you know, want to, want to learn more about that. You know, can you, can you share some about that too? Cause I think our listeners should know about the organization, you know, providing training, cause this may give them a tool or, or some opportunities for training for their own teams. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, if you've ever looked at, certifications or training or anything in the security space or even the tech space, um, some of them can be extremely expensive. Uh, And when you're looking at a a somewhat newer workforce, um, you know, because tech hasn't been around for that long and security even less, um, there's a lot of, you know, college kids or people trying to get into the field that can't afford to spend $8,000 for a week class um and it was everywhere like conferences um some some of these classes go to you know more than ten thousand dollars a piece and while it's good information i don't know that it's that that's a lot of money it's a lot of money um and uh so john strand owns black hills infosec and he started his own training company because he wanted to make training and some of this information more accessible to more people. Um, And it's all about, you know, sharing information. All of the trainers that train there just love sharing and love, um, you know, training and giving this information. They even have um, a bunch of free classes that are there. And it's not just all security specific either. Um, There are, there's a handful of them that are uh, related to just general tech skills, um, and yeah, he, he, he does some really cool uh, 
they call them pay what you can classes, which it's like you could pay $25 for, you know, a 16 hour class. Um, it's, oh, wow. it's uh, really inspiring what they do. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. I'll make sure to put the link to that in the show notes. Cause uh, if our listeners are looking for training opportunities for their, their teams, I want to make sure they can find that, especially in these small organizations with extremely limited budgets, the, the free courses I think would be still huge to be able to offer uh, those kind of resources and, and pay what you can for some of the other stuff as well. Um, Cause I imagine, you know, some of our lists are, you know, very, very small works. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. As, and as and well. a lot of these courses are maybe like 500 bucks ish instead. Um, so, you know, it's much different than paying $10,000 instead. Yes. When we were talking about the mental health hackers, you know, we used the term hacker, there and I want to call it that's being used differently than you know people maybe used to hearing it in the media. Uh, yeah, you talk a little bit about your, your choice of the word hacker. What makes somebody a hacker? Why you're using it that way, and why we should be viewing that as a good thing? Right. Uh, funny enough, it was one of the first talks I ever gave. Nobody go look it up because it was when I had never really done any public speaking. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure it was terrible. Um, <laughs> Ten years later, I'm much better public speaker. And uh, Hackers Are People Too was the name of this talk that I gave. And it's all about how if you look at something and decide that you can use it for something that other than it's intended for, uh, you can kind of consider yourself a hacker, right? Um, you can take uh, apart things, you can figure out, you know, their inner workings, you know, as a, as a kid, I was always trying to take stuff apart and see how it worked and put it back together, uh, or repurposing, you know, other things. That's, that's basically what most of our industry does, right? Like we have, um, hackers that know how the bad guys do stuff. And those are just, those are malicious attackers, right? Those are, those are the people that uh, have no morals and come after what's not theirs. Um, and I think uh, everybody else that are hackers in the space are doing really, really good work to, to stop the bad guys. Yeah. And for the good guys to think that way. I mean, that's also important, too, because if we can oh, yeah. learn how to think the way the criminals do, it just it makes us that much more effective than in defending the business because we can you know, put on the the hacker cap and, and sort of use that mindset and think about how, how would I approach attacking the business as you're trying to figure out what, you know, what do we have that's a value and how right. are we protecting it and how the systems we have could potentially be abused and that sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. uh, cool. What, uh, I know you've worked with a lot of small businesses, uh, you know, at Blue Mira and prior in your career as well. Are there mistakes that you see the small businesses kind of consistently making when it comes to security that, you know, are worth calling out here? Um, yeah, I can, I can think of a few. Um, from a business standpoint, a lot of times um, I think security is thought of as an afterthought, right? And it's not really tied to uh, the risk of something really bad happening to your organization, right? Um, I think now that it's in the media more, more businesses are taking account. Um, but a lot of times we see that there are no security staff or security budget for anything until an incident or a breach happens. Um, so I think 
uh, probably for all of your listeners, if they're listening to this, I think that's step one, right? Like understanding that there are resources out there and information that they can go to. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I, I want to say that's probably the first one. And then uh, getting to the technical side, um, especially working at Blue Mara, I see it a lot, is just a lack of visibility into what's actually happening, right? If you don't know who's doing what, who's accessing what, what devices are on your infrastructure, um, what assets you own, all of that kind of stuff. If you if you have no visibility into it, you have no real way of uh, starting any kind of program or defending any of it. Um, you'll end up with a lot of uh, missed uh, opportunities. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's, it's not because you don't trust your people that you're putting these network monitoring tools and things in in place it's it's you know what's going on on the network and when something does happen you have sort of the ability to rewind the dvr and go back wait what what did happen there like how yeah. did somebody get in or what uh, you know it's uh, it's it's very important to have that capability for sure uh, and then the, the last question that i love to ask every guest host uh here because I, I love everybody's different answers if you could wave a magic wand and, and have like one thing that you could magically have every small business owner out there just understand suddenly about, oh, you know, overnight about security uh, or cybersecurity, what would that one thing be? What would you wave your magic wand and impart to them? I kind of want to use my visibility answer, <laughs> um, yeah. but I already kind of talked about that one. So I guess, um, to know or understand about cybersecurity, I would say that uh, it's not going to make you any money. It's not going to, it, it's purely, I mean, unless you're in the cyber, like selling cybersecurity products, um, it is definitely going to save you money in the long run um, because would you rather spend money on uh, the infrastructure and the time and the, and the energy and effort that it takes to implement a security program? Or would you rather have two weeks of complete downtime because you've been ransomware? Um, it's it's uh, a risk balancing effort um, that I think a lot of people don't get until it's too late. Perfect. So we've got some folks here with questions for us. Uh, ready to go to the phones and answer some questions? Sure. Awesome. Let's go. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast. And sign up to be a caller on a future episode. Our first caller on the line today is Mike from Phoenix. Hey, Mike, how's it going? It's going great, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. Welcome to the show. What uh, kind of questions do you have about starting a security program in a small business? How can we help you today? Well, I was curious about a few things. I mean, the first thing, Amanda, if you could give one piece of advice to a small business, it's hard to know where to get started. You're just starting their journey. What, what would that piece of advice be? Usually my answer for that is, finding out all of what your assets are, kind of nailing down an asset management um, process. Um, one of the most difficult things and something that I rarely see uh, 100, even close to 
is uh, asset management. It's very difficult. Um, you can have uh, endpoints and phones and you name it. Everything has an IP address now uh, ending up on your network, right? So nailing down that, uh, that entire process is a huge game changer, especially when it comes to um, when you start to log for things, right? If you, you know, want to know every time that there's a login somewhere, but you don't have any idea what devices people are supposed to be logging into, um, it's it's not going to get super far. So, I mean, I have a great, I have a follow-up question on that. Once you know, like once you figure out what all the things are that a small business has, what what's like the most common problem you see? Um, lack of use of free tools is fairly common. So one that I try and push and one that we have even um, started implementing in our um, onboarding procedure is having anybody that has any Windows device install Sysmon. Um, it's one of those things that if you ever have an incident, any incident responder is going to be extremely happy with because they will be able to tell you what happened and when you know, who clicked on what, uh, what websites were accessed, what uh, applications were run, all of these kind of things that happen in um, like malware or ransomware or any, any other kind of breach um, on, on Windows devices. So um, that's, that's definitely one of them. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of blinky boxes out there that you can pay for that will do uh, what a lot of free things do. And Sysmon, uh and correct me if I'm wrong, Amanda, that's a tool from Microsoft. It just doesn't ship right. with Windows. Exactly. So it's a Microsoft exactly. tool that you want to add into Windows that probably should be there from the day you turn on the computer, you know, right out of the box, but it isn't. Um, yes. And, and I think, you know, spot on with your comments about, you know, inventorying and just knowing what you have, uh, both from a, a devices standpoint and what devices you have on the network, like you mentioned, but also just what, what data do we have like what information do we have you know customer information things like what is a value that we even want to protect here and having right. just that inventory as well and and this doesn't have to be a huge project i mean you can sit down in the evening pull out your notebook and a pencil and just kind of step through your business and think you know kind of our you know what do we do how do we make money and like what information drives those and where that information lives is that in microsoft or google you know, email system and, and drive, or is that in some other SaaS service, or is that in a filing cabinet in the back room? And just kind of knowing what you have, where it is, and how it fits into your business, uh, it's just good to have that inventory anyway, from any sort of business process management standpoint. So uh, I strongly suggest folks do that. But the other big mistake I see folks make as they're first getting started, honestly, is just doing things. Like we're going to do all the things people tell us we should do these things. Uh, you know, my buddy's nephew knows something about computers and he says, we need to do this. And, you know, this other guy here that runs it at this other company, my, you know, my friend I met at this networking group says we need to do this other thing. So we just start doing things, but it's not coordinated. It's not strategic. And I think that's an area where small businesses struggle because they don't have folks necessarily to guide them through that strategy and prioritize what really should we be working on first? What order should we do these things in? 
so that you know you can deal with dependencies as well. Um, you know, and you don't roll something out and then find out that you need to go change a bunch of things because now you're ready to roll out some new security safeguard and you got to undo a bunch of stuff you already did. Uh, but also, just you're not spending money the the little bit of money that you already have on stuff you don't necessarily need or maybe that isn't appropriate to your business because it was appropriate to somebody else's. So they tell you, oh yeah, you should do this or that some framework says to do it. Uh, because again, the, you know, the frameworks are best practices and yeah, there's some academic rigor that has gone into building those, but at the same time, all of that doesn't necessarily fit with every small business in these small organizations. And you look at some things in frameworks like separation of duties. Well, if you're a one person company or maybe a two person company, separation of duties is not necessarily your top priority as you're trying to figure out what we need to be focusing on. So some of these things are just not applicable out of the gate, but you know, somebody may tell you you need to do a bunch of things that uh, you know, aren't, aren't important, aren't gonna be valuable and are just a bunch of busy work. Um, so I think that's what I see at least is the, the biggest mistake and what I try to keep my clients from doing, um, you know, and try to help them understand where we stand today. Where do we need to go? What's that look like before we start actually trying to figure out how do we get there? Um, and putting that strategy together is, is really, really important and saves a lot of time and effort and heartache too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing I wonder about is you talk about, you know, discovering things and obviously there can be a lot of sprawl of different ways of solving problems. One we hear a lot about is passwords and default accounts. Like how big a, how big a problem do you think that is in you know, the, the small business space? I think it's everywhere <laughs> and it's not just small business space either. Um, I, I've seen it in uh, you know, Fortune 100 companies uh, in previous roles, like it's it's definitely something that still happens. I don't think that the technology that we were given in the beginning necessarily helped with that um, because there wasn't up until like Azure AD uh, great ways of preventing that. Um, I remember in what, like Windows 2003, you were able to custom write your own DLL to force certain password requirements or something. It was insane. Like the, the links that you had to go through to uh, keep your password structure okay. Um, and that's not just with like user, like actual user accounts either, but you see that on firewalls and printers and cameras and everything. And um, I, th I think as time moves on and some of those old devices uh, get kind of, you know, taken off networks, it's it's becoming better. You see, like, if you buy um, uh, an internet camera or any, like they're forcing you now to change passwords and to rotate those things and update firmware. And I do think it's getting better, but it's still very prevalent and and hardware too you know if you go and get a modem from your internet service provider you know whoever that may be the pat the default password isn't the same on every one of them like they used to be like they're kind of randomly generated and things so it's it's a little bit better for for small businesses like you should should still go in and change these things but it's not completely open you know 
username admin, password admin, like it used to be, that was trivial to guess. Uh, and I think where when it comes to, to passwords in small businesses these days, really the, the struggle that I see is folks reusing the same password on multiple accounts or even worse, mobile accounts between personal and business. And so you've got your personal email and, you know, your Facebook and everything else is the same password as you're using for your work email, which has other stuff tied to it. Uh, and if one of those accounts, if you use that same password in some just random website somewhere and that website is breached and that password is stolen from that website and used used at other places, the, 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 the bad guys can buy that on, you know, the, the black market, the dark web, and they can go try it. Like they can go try to log into stuff with your email and password to other systems. And when you've reused them there, those almost are becoming the same as default accounts uh, in in that regard. So it's, it's definitely good to use different passwords on different systems, especially between personal and business. Uh, it's just as important as not having the standard passwords at all, because when that same password is in multiple sites, it only takes one of those sites to get popped. And now that password's no longer a secret. And if it's always tied with your email address or whatever uses your username, it's trivial for people to, oh, yeah, I know that guy's password. And there you go. Yeah, that's uh, anytime anyone outside of our space finds out what I do uh, and they start asking questions about cybersecurity related things, that is the number one thing that I tell them to do is go get a password manager. Here's one password, here's whatever. Go get a password manager, they're free and use it to generate all your passwords. <laughs> use it to generate all of your security answers to all the security questions and just save it and even you know, sure, like LastPass got breached several times. Um, so it's possible that those things can get breached. If you don't want to use one of those things, write it down. The chances that somebody's going to break in and steal your passwords at in your home office is probably way less than it is uh, that, you know, it gets leaked somewhere. Just, you know, don't do that if you're at work. <laughs> right. don't, there's, you know... Not on this places you don't want to do that at. Right, right. Uh, yeah, don't do that there. Um, uh, but yeah, it's just the different risks than two-factor two off. Definitely. Um, all good advice. So one thing I've been wondering, like we all saw the news article of Lincoln College in Illinois closing down after 157 years and citing a mixture of COVID and ransomware as their reasons. Something I've pondered and wondered about is how many how many do we know how many small businesses have shut down or ceased operations after an impactful cyber attack? What, what do you think? I honestly, I've only heard of two ever. That was one of them, the college. Uh, I forgot the name of it. And then I think there was a a restaurant or some, some kind of food service related place that had done it um, a couple years ago, but I cannot remember. I don't think it's super often. Um, I think a lot of times uh, there's one or two devices that get hit. And by the time um, that information is kind of exfilled and taken and they're trying to get their ransom, I don't, I don't think they keep on going. Yeah, I think 
not I don't know that it happens a ton. I haven't seen it either, actually. And, you know, of the IRs that I've worked, there was one I was kind of surprised that it didn't have because the, the business was hard down for three weeks uh, because they were not prepared. And it was heartbreaking uh, going through that. And as avenue after avenue for recovery were just being closed off because they realized they didn't have viable backups and they didn't have backups of configurations. They didn't have things documented. I mean, there was just, it was just one thing after another and to not be able to operate for three solid weeks while they rebuilt everything. Uh, but they didn't go under like that. That was the worst one that I've seen, but I haven't actually been a part of any IRs uh, in my career, at least that, that the business went out of business. And, and I don't know if the university that you were, you were mentioning, there was the one I'm thinking of there. There's one that I remember as well. They, but they had already been struggling prior to that. So it was basically like they were already kind of on the ropes and that was just the last straw for them. Um, and they were just like, we can't do this. If I'm thinking of the, the one that, that you mentioned, I may be thinking of a, a different one, but yeah, it's, we talk a lot about, you know, oh, the business is going to go, uh, this will kill us. But I don't know that that's actually the case. And I actually talk about that with with clients as well as we're planning risk and stuff and, and looking at how they're going to invest in things because it's it's not quite that stark and binary. Um, and so that lets you pull it back to, okay, reframe the discussion. How do we really want to prioritize these things? And, and it lets them kind of relax a little bit as well and really, and start thinking about actual prioritization and, and, you know, one thing at a time, instead of we have to do all the things all at once, but we can't afford it. And what do we do? And it's overwhelming. Yeah, really, really good insights. Um, so, I mean, my final question is, you know, where, where can a small business find a playbook um, in terms of just how to even get the basics right. I love this question because the training that I give through Anti-Siphon is all about tabletop uh, exercises and playbooks. <laughs> so this is perfectly perfect, perfect question. Um, I have a whole ton of resources. Uh, the top four-ish that we usually uh, recommend is there's instantresponse.org. They have a ton of playbooks there. Um, Microsoft, if you're a heavy, like 365 Azure shop, Microsoft has their actual own instant response playbooks on their, um, uh, Microsoft learn website. You can just like Google Microsoft IR playbooks. Um, and they have the full, like, you need to look for all of these things on all of these places. And here's the steps that you need to walk through and, and everything like that. Um, and then there's also, uh, CISA government agency um, has an entire uh, uh, website kind of dedicated to incident response playbooks also. Um, and then I also, I don't know if you have show notes or not, but there's a really good one on GitHub um, that I usually link, link to people also. This is a really good question. And I'm glad you asked this because like, this is one of the problems that I actually see in the industry is we have frameworks and we have these documents and, and things that, Amanda's talking about, but they're built for us. They're built for us as practitioners to build this out. They're not built as a playbook for a business owner who's not a security practitioner, not an IT professional. 
nor should they be or really want to be. They want to focus on their business and their core competency. It's not built for them to do this. Uh, and so one of the things actually that I've been working on building is a set of templates, uh, you know, some, some policy, some, some process templates, uh, document template, things like that, checklists that f- with instructions, as well as kind of a self-assessment with instructions on, on written specifically for business leaders, business owners to go through and step through to help them understand, okay, where do we stand? What do we need to be doing? And like, here's how we use these things and sort of, uh, you know, provide these base fundamental or foundational, I guess, found, I don't want to say basic, you know, cause basic makes it sound easy. Uh, but it's foundational stuff with the instruction on here's how you use this in your org so that organizations that don't have a lot of resources can still have some access to this and and get guided through at least building this foundational security program to be able to then start iterating in the future. And so those playbooks that I'm working on developing, I hope will actually provide this. And so when those are available, I'll, I'll also talk about it on the, the podcast and let folks know, we'll put links to those out, but those will be available for free. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where they'll live, whether they'll be in, you know, GitHub or something like that, or, or Gumroad, or if they'll be on the Focivity website, I have to decide exactly where they'll ultimately live uh, to make it easy to distribute and for people to find and to manage it. But uh, yeah, that's something that is definitely a, a hole in the industry and the industry underserves small businesses because this stuff is not easily accessible uh, unless you're already a practitioner. Thanks, Mike, for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us. Those were fantastic questions and uh, we will talk to you another time. All right. Our next caller on the show today is Tammy from Kentucky. Hey, Tammy, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I need some help. Welcome. Yeah, so tell us uh, a little bit about what, what's going on, what sort of problem you're wrestling with, and what we can do. Yeah, so I've got several websites that I need to get like the privacy policy updated. And with all these regulations and everything, especially like if I take payments on the website, I need to know like, what exactly that I can put on those privacy policies and any kind of like cookie policy that I need to implement so that I make sure I'm compliant. So I'm gonna start off with saying I'm not great at compliance (laughs) in my personal or professional life. Um, So it's gonna be a very generic answer for me. Um, So the only compliance that I've ever had to deal with is when I worked at the hospital we had to be HIPAA and PCI compliant. So that was a completely different thing than GDPR, right? Um, GDPR has way more teeth. There's a lot more fines associated with it. Um, They have much more specific requirements. Um, And as far as I know, the people that have had to become GDPR compliant, um, try and one, work with a good lawyer that knows GDPR. And two, uh, finding other organizations that kind of do the same thing that you do. So like knowing where, what data you take in and why and what data you share and why and where, and then trying to see if anybody else has a policy like that. Um, But that's my very, very generic answer, not knowing much about GDPR. 
Yeah, a, a GBR, GPT. G, yeah, that the privacy thing over in Europe. That thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not European, so I don't normally care. Uh, so uh, GDPR is a decent sort of pattern to look at because right now privacy in the U.S. is kind of a mess. Like, there's no federal standard. We have some states, California and New York, probably the most notable that have enacted uh, legislation there. Uh, and if you have customers or clients in those states, you know you may need to be compliant there, depending on what information you're collecting from them in order to provide services or or whatever through your websites. Uh, so it's it's kind of a good reference. I also think that if we do end up with a national standard, it will probably look somewhat similar to that in enough ways that if you've kind of built with that in mind, you'll you should be relatively close. But I also have to mention that you know privacy as a field is different than security. Yes, yeah, security supports privacy, but at the end of the day, from a privacy policy standpoint, that's something you're actually probably going to want to work with a privacy lawyer on because privacy is, as a field, is more on the legal side of things. And so there's some overlap and it's tangential to security and what we do help protect the private data. Uh, you definitely are going to want to have a lawyer look over whatever you do to make sure that it's covering the basis that you want to cover, especially if you know you have customers in California or New York or, or what have you. Um, but the key thing to remember with privacy, and if I have privacy lawyers listening to this, you know, they, they may be pulling their hat because I'm oversimplifying things uh, potentially here, but a big component of privacy is about consent. And it's about the personal information, the information about that person that they're sharing with you and the fact that they own that data still. That's that's their data. You're being entrusted with it, but it's not yours. So in a business environment, we're used to working with, oh, this is the company's data. But with private data, you know, personally identifiable information, that sort of thing, we're just being entrusted. We are stewards of that data and we have to be given consent to have it. We need to let folks know under these types of privacy legislation. We have to let folks know what data we're connect collecting from them, how we're going to use it, if you're going to share it with any third parties, who you're going to share it with and for what purposes, if you're going to change how you use it or who you share it with for whatever reason, you need to be able to let them know that you've changed these things. Like there's a lot to this that goes far beyond just how are we going to protect that data when we when we have it uh, and there's some processes in place as well that you want to make sure you have to support that policy where the, the folks who actually own that information those individuals can contact you to find out what information you have about them you know and you can tell them then and you have a mechanism a way that you can tell them yeah i have this information your name your address your phone number you know these these things your birth date all of that and they they need to be able to have you delete it if they need you to delete it or correct it if it's incorrect. Uh, so all of these kind of go together. So there's definitely some processes that go in for how you manage that data, maintain the data, and that the, the people whose data it actually is can interact with you uh, 
in, in that regard. So yeah, I, I would definitely say a, a, a privacy lawyer would be good to have at least review. There are templates out there for this type of thing. Uh, but this is one of those areas because they tend to be a lot more legal ease. Uh, you know, the, the language there isn't necessarily plain English. They read more like contracts and that kind of stuff. You'll want a lawyer to make sure that you understand what's in your privacy policy so that you can then kind of put together a checklist of, hey, these are the things that I need to be doing to make sure I'm compliant with my own policy. Because that's the last thing you want to do is have a published policy that you're not actually compliant with. Because uh, that can also get you in hot water if, if there's a breach and you're not doing what you told people you said you were doing with regard to privacy, especially if you have customers in those states where there are penalties for that. So, Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I have a follow-up question too, because one of the things that I'm building out with these websites is um, I'm wanting to set up like an e-commerce. And so I'll have to be taking payments and stuff like that. And I'm, I've seen where like payment systems can get highly targeted um, so I'm curious, like, what are both of your thoughts on what's the best way that I can, what measures can I take to, uh, like, secure my, like, payment software that I use whenever I do get orders that come in on my e-commerce website? Yeah, for sure. Um, don't write your own. is <laughs> usually, like, uh, the first piece of advice that I give because a lot of people uh, think, oh, well, I already have this, like, custom software inside. I just need to hook up a website to it and get all the credit cards that way. Uh, don't do that. No, terrible idea. There's a lot of really good um, sites out there that just help you tie things in like Stripe. You can use Stripe, you can use um, PayPal, whatever, like do that. Work with those companies to in implement um, and go through their guides on, on how to securely set that up in a, in a, in a website because it takes it takes a lot of the responsibility of uh, developing and maintaining and everything that software off of your shoulders and, and give it to somebody else. And I would take that even one step farther and say, don't even try to run it yourself. That's um, right. You yeah, know, for sure. WordPress, for instance, gets a bad name in the industry, but it's not because it inherently is insecure itself, but it's because it is so easy to set up that people who don't have any background yes. in this can do it and they can get a WordPress site up and going and, but they, but and they install don't know code from anybody. They don't know how to secure yeah. it. They don't know how to maintain it. Yeah. They have like a WooCommerce plugin that it's just, it, it, it does it everything for you. So I was just curious, like, is that even that secure? Or should I use like a third party in, a, in you know, in it? I would use a platform. Now, WooCommerce is a platform. So, you know, that is good. You know, I, I say use a platform instead of trying to operate your own website, your own shopping cart, your own, you know, connection to the payment gateways and, and those types of things. Uh, sh whether it's Shopify or Wix or Squarespace or, uh, you know, any number of these out there. And then they integrate with, you know, like Amanda said, Stripe and PayPal and Square. Well, I guess Square is PayPal uh, at this point. Now, yeah, it? Are yeah. They, no, Square yeah, is I Block. Think so. Square is Block. 
Venmo is owned by anymore. PayPal now. We've had that's some consolidation. Right. Right. Venmo is PayPal yeah. now. Uh, but yeah, these big platforms have great offerings for this so that you don't have to worry about all of the PCI compliance because you and your systems technically never are touching any of this stuff. You're okay. fully leaving it to them. And I would 100% say use use a, a third-party platform and shopping cart and everything and don't try to set up your own WordPress or something with a, a plugin and all of this to, to do that. Because unless unless you've got a team uh, of people who are going to manage it and maintain it for you and a team like Amanda's team doing detection engineering and actually monitoring what's going on in that environment for you, you're not going to have what you need to keep that data protected at all. Okay. Like just There's no chance that you're going to be able to do what you need to do. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Awesome. I'm glad we were able to, to help with this today. Uh, Tammy, thank you for calling. We appreciate all of our callers every week. And our last caller today isn't actually a caller at all. This is another mailbag, actually. Uh, David has sent in this question, but he is based out of Europe and uh, time zones aren't lining up. So he is sound asleep right now, but we're going to answer his questions anyway. Uh, so David writes in and asks uh, about what is the recommended size uh, as a, a small business or startup is scaling up where they should start thinking about creating a security department or hiring a chief information security officer? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I, I, I hate this question. I hate this answer just as much as everybody else does, but it depends. <laughs> Um, it depends on what you're in charge of. It depends on what your business model is. Um, but at a certain point, you are going to start having to ask yourself the questions uh, that are security related that that somebody else is going to have to answer on a daily basis, right? You'll get to a certain point where your CEO or CTO or whomever um, cannot accurately and consistently answer and handle all of the security related things that they're going to need to, that they're going to need to cover. Um, and you just have to be cognizant and aware that that's going to happen and just always open to the opportunity that like, okay, now we understand that this is 50% of my role. When I get to 75%, we definitely need to have uh, a separate security staff or separate uh, chief security uh, officer. Um, I see people start really early sometimes, and usually when that happens, that CISO is also in charge of other stuff, right? If you have a CISO really super early on in a company, they're probably also an individual contributor. They are going to be writing policy or, um, you know, writing code or doing whatever, so, you know, being, being on the sales team or whatever if, if, you're, if you're super, super small. Um, but as long as you're prepared for that, I don't see that there is going to be a specific starting point where you're going to have to make that kind of decision. What I generally advise is there needs to be a business driver for it. You know, so as a startup or, or a business is scaling, it's going to be different for each business based on what they do, the kind of information they have, the, the industry that they're in, the customers that they're serving and what the customers are demanding, um, you know, so you may have a tech startup that gets to 30 or 40 people and customers are demanding that 
you know, sending security questionnaires and there's customer band that like you need to have somebody named as your security officer and they're asking questions that you can't answer and you've got to start formalizing your security program. And you may have some other non-tech startup company that get to 100, 150 people before, as Amanda said, before the chief information security officer kind of role or hat is no longer being worn by the CTO or the CIO or whatever, and they need to hire somebody specific to do that. So uh, I don't know that there's a specific rule of thumb there, but I, I take the approach to look for what's the business driver for creating that role or creating that team. Because honestly, in most small businesses, that's something that should be outsourced uh, in, in you know at smaller scale, uh, either through a uh, IT managed services provider, a managed security services provider, so an MSP or an MSSP, uh, or potentially with a fractional, as you start growing and need to formalize a, more, a little more, just the same way there are fractional CFOs uh, that can help with uh, small organizations. You can have fractional CTOs, you can have fractional C chief information security officers or CISOs as well. And so having one of these virtual or fractional CISOs, VCSOs, help in providing guidance and provide guidance as the organization grows, you can get the benefit of that experience and strategic thinking without having to hire that person full time. And you may only need that strategic level for a couple hours a month just to ask questions and to get, get guidance, maybe do some assessments and help you plan your roadmap. And then you go back to executing or you work with your managed IT service provider to actually do the execution uh, on this stuff. So no, no real rule of thumb at all on this, it's going to be different for every business based on business drivers and when you can reasonably outsource. And those business drivers are going to then sort of indicate or dictate to you when you need to insource, when uh, you're really needing somebody full-time focusing on security. And it's, it's too much for somebody to fractionally be looking at it because they're constantly short on capacity. And Amanda, you touched on sort of where, where, uh, David was going to go with his second question is, you know, at what size or team should the CISO stop doing hands-on work? <laughs> I think that one, it definitely depends on who you ask, right? Because um, delegation can be really difficult, <laughs> especially if you are, um, you know, partial business owner or you're the one that started the company or, you know, this is just something that's a real passion of yours. Um, it can be really hard. I know this from firsthand experience. It can be really hard to delegate certain tasks because you care so much about, uh, you know, everything going right. And you it's not that you tr don't trust anybody, but, you know, it's always easier if you can do it faster and not have to, you know, all of those excuses always come up um, when it comes to not having to do hands-on work anymore. Um, but the business will definitely... Uh, require it at a certain point, right? There's going to be just additional um, stresses and job uh, uh, requirements of a CISO that at a certain point, I, I hope they realize that they need to stop and, and uh, not be doing, um, you know, in, in the weeds, uh, hands-on work anymore. Um, because uh, going back all the way to the beginning to the mental health talks, uh, that's something that's really, really super common with um, executive level people is uh, just the stress that goes along with that and not 
not giving up on, uh, I mean, you're not giving up on it, but not uh, delegating to others to handle that kind of stuff is just, you know, increasing your stressors even, even more. And in small organizations as well that I, at least that I work with from, you know, one to a hundred, maybe 150 people, uh, you know, is generally the space that, that I'm working on. Cause those are the organizations that are least served by the industry. Um, yes. In those organizations, it's not real common for the CISO to fully be able to step fully back from hands-on work at that scale, simply because, you know, they may be able to hire a person or two people, uh, you know, on their on their team potentially to do security. But at that scale, there's still a lot of outsourcing going on. And to build that team to cover the kind of 24-7 coverage that you would need you're not going to get that kind of budget in most most organizations that are at the smaller end of this of that scale. So I, I think honestly, uh, it really does come down to to delegation when the organization gets to a point where the the chief information security officer is that role is fully an executive role. They have you know directors or something in place that are, you know have managers of managers, like that's when they're going to get out of this. But if your CISO is a director level or something like that, uh, they're still going to be involved a lot of the day to day. They're going to be involved in in the, the, the collaboration with other teams across the organization. They're going to be involved with kind of architecting things and, and building these repeatable patterns or be involved with defining policies and probably authoring a lot of the, the high level policy that then that they're delegating out to other folks to institutionalize these programs to assign control owners you know because that's the other thing too is if if your security leader in your organization is trying to manage and run and own the entire program and and that's not institutionalized you haven't assigned control owners so that folks in hr own the hr related controls and the hr processes and the folks in you know, sales on the sales related process, folks in customer service own the customer service related processes and controls around security. And the same with IT, they're going to burn out they're, they're and they're going to reach a point where it just isn't possible and they can't get above that to be strategic. Um, as, uh, you know, Amanda was mentioning, there's just a capacity issue there. So outsourcing is <laughs> honestly really huge in this like i can't say it enough like security and a lot of times it uh is not the core competency of most small businesses and the the day-to-day it operations security operations stuff if you can get that shifted off to somebody who like they do that day in and day out and that's their bag and you focus on what you focus on they're going to be a lot more efficient at that. And it's ultimately going to be less expensive. You know, when you look at the opportunity cost of what you could be doing instead of doing that. Um, yeah. It's very, very important to look at that. Yeah. We, we see that a lot too, because a lot of, a lot of who we work with are uh, small businesses. Right. And you start to explain like, okay, well we have this many staff, you know, full time creating detections for you. There's no way that on anybody's security budget at that small company, you're ever going to be able to have, I mean, most of them don't even have a tech team that large, let alone a security team that large. Um, So yeah, like outsourcing that kind of stuff uh, is invaluable sometimes. Yep. Yeah. Dollar for dollar. It's just not equivalent (laughs) when you Mm -hmm. try and build it yourself at this scale. Oh yeah. And all right. So 
Yeah, we had great callers uh, this afternoon, great questions and, and uh, discussion as well. A any sort of closing thoughts or final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with here based on the questions and conversations we've had so far? Yeah, I mean, I really loved all the questions. They were, they were great. I love, uh, it's one of the reasons I got into this space is because I just love uh, helping fix problems. And, you know, in the beginning, it was just fixing computers, but now it's more fixing problems and helping people with uh, issues like this kind of stuff. Um, I guess just reach out to me on, on LinkedIn or whatever. And uh, if you have any, have any other questions or um, want to talk about detections because, you know, I, I do love talking about detection related security things. Yeah. And normally I ask actually, you know, where folks can find you online is LinkedIn the best place or is there anywhere else they should? Yeah. Yeah. Oddly, uh, oddly it's LinkedIn. So, uh, I used to be really, really big on Twitter. I used to do a lot of stuff on Twitter and I do less these days, um, because people kind of scattered and went to all other corners of the internet to, you know, social media things. But um, yeah, it's been mostly LinkedIn, some Twitter. Okay, very good. I will put your LinkedIn profile handle and link in the show description as well. So people can find you. So thank you for joining me on the show today, Amanda. Uh, I said before, I'm really glad we were able to connect and, and make this happen and schedules all aligned and it worked out. And uh, as always, I want to give a huge thank you to our listeners. Uh, we do this for you. And just knowing that you're there downloading the episodes and listening makes it all worth it. If you like what we're doing and find it valuable, please share it with others in your network, uh, especially small business folks in your network. If you think there's something that we talked about here today that they should listen to and, and uh, hear about and know. I am Accidental CISO. And until next time, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Focivity.